Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In honour of Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, this week we're re-releasing our Gone Too Soon webinar as a podcast episode. Hosted by MQ's Bridey, the panel consisted of Professor Rory O'Connor, Dr. Rushika Gajwadi, a clinical psychologist and MQ Fellow, and MQ Ambassador Harry Corrin. In this discussion, they spoke about the current state of treatments, the misconceptions about suicide, and how research may prevent more people from being gone too soon. So today we're going to be talking about a subject that some people can find quite difficult to discuss. And that is the tragedy of lives being cut short due to mental illness. So people with serious mental illnesses do pass away on average about 20 years earlier than the general population. Now, that isn't just due to suicide, although that is a factor, but it's also due to the links between physical and mental health, the increase in risky and self-destructive behaviours that some illnesses bring. And also there are other associated illnesses, things like addiction and alcoholism. So these topics can be really tough to discuss, but there is hope. Um, researchers are working really hard to learn more about how and why these tragedies happen so that we can find better treatments and interventions to prevent people from being gone too soon. So today's discussion is a hopeful one as we're looking at some of this work, but we are going to be talking about some subjects that people might find distressing. So we do have a trigger warning in place. So I'm really delighted to be joined today by Professor Rory O'Connor from the Suicide Research Lab at Glasgow University, by Dr. Rashika Gajwani, who is a clinical psychologist and an MQ fellow researching borderline personality disorder, and our very own MQ ambassador, Harry Corrin, who's going to be sharing his experiences after losing a loved one to mental illnesses. So welcome, all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so, Rory, you're the head of the Suicide Behaviour Research Lab. Um, could you tell us a bit about your work and why you got into it? Yeah, hi, hi, Bryony, and um, I'm delighted to be here, obviously, um, with Rashika and Hari, and obviously under the auspices of MQ, a long relationship with MQ, so I'm delighted to, um, I'm on the Science Council, and obviously, if you like Rashika, who's now a, a current MQ fellow, I was, as my son, deciding he needs some dinner I think actually um but the but I, I some of the research that we do at Glasgow was funded a few years ago by MQ so I'm delighted to be here and it's great to see just seeing on the chat here people from such different backgrounds but really covering people from with a whole range of different life experiences so hopefully the conversation we'll have today will be fruitful so just getting back to your question yeah so I lead the suicidal behavior research lab at the University of Glasgow, and I've been doing work into suicide for about um, 25 years now. And, and at the work that we do at Glasgow, we do lots of different types of research. But broadly speaking, I think the work that we do 
um, is, is you get divided into two areas. One is an understanding the complex set of factors that lead to suicide and self-harm, as well as in what we can do in terms of interventions. And indeed, it was some of the interventions-based work that MQ found, funded a, a few years ago, which I'll come back to in a second. But in terms of that understanding, I think one of the, I think the challenges of talking about suicide or, or mental health more generally is we're, we're frightened, oftentimes frightened to ask, or sometimes are very difficult questions. And I think there's still lots of stigma around mental health and still lots of stigma around suicide. And although what's been really interesting when I reflect on the 25 years that I've been working in the field, that there's been huge advances in terms of our understanding and challenging our stigma, we still have a long, long way to go, especially in, this, in, in the context of severe mental illness. But with respect to the work that we do at Glasgow, a lot of the work in terms of understanding is guided along uh, around a model of suicide that I developed a few years ago, the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, or the IMV model. And that's my attempt to try and understand the complexity of suicide. Um, and in terms of that understanding, I would argue that suicide, and the work that we do has shown this and others have shown that suicide is driven, yes, it often happens in the context of mental health problems. It often happens in the context of social inequality, but it's what we're trying to understand is how suicide is driven often not about by feelings of wanting to end one's life, but rather by wanting the pain to end. And so that sense of being trapped by mental pain is the heart of this model of suicide, the IMV model. And really the work that we've been doing at Glasgow is trying to understand well, what factors lead to that, that sense of entrapment, that sense of unbearable mental pain. And of course, the, the, the factors that lead to that sense of mental pain are different for everyone. But to me, the common feature is this sense of being trapped by it. And it's often driven by feelings of defeat and or humiliation, which are also often triggered by a sense of loss, a sense of rejection, especially social rejection, and a sense of shame. So then the work that we've been doing is trying to look, map that sort of this, this, the complex set of factors that lead us to feel defeated or humiliated, and then feel trapped. And that could be linking into early life trauma. For example, we do a lot of work on adverse childhood experiences, or it could be things to do with sort of the body's response to stress. And we look at a lot of work on the stress response and the body becoming dysregulated because it's been repeatedly, repeatedly hammered in a sense, um, metaphorically speaking. And then also looking at how we treat people in everyday world and how that sense of shame and and some groups in particular who feel who are disadvantaged, those, those groups who experience inequality, that's just adding to the not only the social understanding, the social context, but on the mental burden on people. So that's the work we've been trying to do, is trying to understand those factors that lead to that sense of entrapment, and then understanding why it is some people who feel trapped become suicidal and others don't. And then the other last thing I'll say in the model is, the other thing in my sort of model is trying to re or is recognizing that the factors that lead somebody to become suicidal in the first place is defeat and entrapment and so on are different from the factors that will um, help us understand who will cross the precipice from thinking about suicide to acting on your thoughts. And so what we've, we've tried to do, we've spent a lot of work in the last 10 years in particular in trying to understand that transition because crucially, if I can't stop somebody becoming suicidal, well, hopefully, hopefully I can do more. We can all do more 
to reduce the number of people who cross that precipice and sadly may die by suicide and whatever. Across the globe now, 703,000 people are dying by suicide each year. And then just the other bit of work, or type of work we do, that's a sort of the understanding. We lots of, in terms of understanding, we do large-scale surveys and epidemiological work with clinical and non-clinical samples. And we also do sort of experimental-based work as well in our lab, which we try and understand, say, for example, the stress response in the body. But then the other bit of work we do is on our interventions end of things. So it's one thing being able to understand why somebody becomes suicidal. The crucial next step is what can we do about it? What can we do to reduce the likelihood that suicidal acts occur? And so, so some of the work was, which was funded by MQ was this feasibility study we did a few years ago looking at safety planning. And safety planning is this very simple intervention which helps people to think about the warning signs that maybe a suicidal crisis may be escalating. And then ways in which we can either keep ourselves safe internally in terms of internal coping responses or external responses, as well as then keeping our environment safe. Now, although suicide prevention is so much more than safety planning, what we were able to show with the MQ study was that people in absolute crisis, this, in the feasibility study, we found that people who had attempted suicide, we would complete a work with them collaboratively to complete a safety plan. And then we would offer telephone support in the four or five weeks following that crisis. When we know risk of repeat suicidal behavior is really high, what we're able to show is that in that four or five weeks in our study, about 80% of the people in crisis used that safety plan in those four or five weeks and potentially kept themselves alive. So it's trying to then look at those broader interventions. That safety planning is only one, but there's a range over the last 20 years, there's been this growth in our understanding and in terms of treatment interventions. And that most of the evidence I'm aware of is the psychological or what we describe as the psychosocial evidence base. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, things like dialectical behavioral therapy, like two types of sort of talking therapies, which we know reduce suicidal behavior sort of in, in, in adults in particular. So I suppose that's maybe a good way to sort of end the answer to that first question, which is, Two types of work, understanding and then intervening and helping. And then hopefully both of those pieces of work, when we have meetings like this and we do a lot of public dissemination in our group, is to challenge the stigma. Because stigma prevents people from seeking help. So that's one of the things we're, we're really, really passionate about in our group in Glasgow. It's such important work that you're doing. And you're right, sharing the message is, uh, and beating that stigma is half the battle. So what have you... Um, in your research, what have you found are kind of the biggest risks for, for suicidal thoughts? And what are the interventions that, have, that you think are most effective or that you found have been most effective? Well, I touched on that a bit in the, in the answer to the first question, Brian. And I suppose, to me, it, it always comes back to, so if you're trying to understand why suicidal thoughts emerge, it's this sense of entrapment, I would argue, is key. Why somebody feels this trapped by mental pain. And that sense of entrapment is often individual feels that they're a burden on others. And that maybe they feel socially disconnected, and that um, and really there's that often sadly people people who are acutely suicidal can feel that their loved ones would be better off if they were dead. Now, which is awful, awful. And as somebody I speak as somebody who's been twice bereaved by suicide, and the, the guilt and of that of those bereavements, I mean, which people experience sadly too often, is just incredibly um, well unbearable. I mean, and, and but. 
what we need to do is try and understand and support people who are bereaved by suicide because people bereaved by suicide are also at increased risk of suicide themselves. But in terms of the question, so, so of course, we're trying to understand mental health problems because suicide in Western countries certainly usually happens in the context of mental health problems like, say, depression. And, but, but then I often try and turn that question around and say, well, actually, yes, we know there's a relationship between depression and mental health problems or mental illness and suicide. But remember that the overwhelming majority of people who die by suicide um, they are so overwhelmed. Sorry, the overwhelming majority of people who are say treated for depression never become suicidal and will never die by suicide. And some of the best evidence suggests is about four or five percent of people who are treated for depression will end their life. So when we're trying to understand suicide risk, we have to re- look beyond psychiatric explanations. Of course, that's part of the landscape of understanding risk, and we have to treat mental health problems and mental illness because untreated or undertreated or wrongly treated mental health problems obviously is not, I mean, is a risk factor. But then we look more broadly than that, as I've mentioned already, looking at negative life events, looking at trauma, looking at inequality. I mean, there's a huge social class gradient on suicide. And and broadly speaking, you're three times more likely to die by suicide if you're from a more socially disadvantaged background compared to a more affluent background. So we we need to look at suicide and its prevention as a public health priority and concern and tackling the mental health component is part of that understanding the interplay between biology psychology social and cultural factors all come into the mix and things like unemployment or um, uh, experience of any trauma any stage in your life increases your risk and it's trying to sort of nail down that complexity and that's why I think it's helpful for me when I try and think about somebody understands suicide risk, I'm saying, well, yeah, there's lots of complex things about somebody's past and present, which impact on the way they view their future. And to me, that's what we're trying to understand is we're trying to get some sense of what an individual view view of their future is, because crucially, for those 708,000 people globally each year, they're seeing suicide as a solution to the pain, a way of ending their pain, and the causes and consequences the causes of that pain are multivarious and as I say I've only mentioned some here but we need to tackle obviously treatment of mental health problems getting people the access and support that they need when they need it and then I'll say one last thing on the on service provision in terms of mental health services is yeah there's been we've this whole agenda now about leveling up right and and I'm sort of a bit frustrated by this agenda because of course there has been some progress made but my God, the waiting list, especially for child and adolescent mental health services, is ridiculous. It's oftentimes more than a year. We need to be delivering help and support when people need it, not, not um, six months later. That's just not helpful to anybody. And then the other bit of that is we need to make sure that the treatments are tailored to the groups who are particularly at risk. Three quarters of all suicides in the UK are by men, but we do not know whether any of those psychological interventions like the CBT or the, or the DBT I've just mentioned that work for men because the clinical research hasn't been, we have had insufficient sizes of trials, of clinical trials to be able to unpack whether those interventions work for men, the single biggest risk group for suicide in this country. I mean, you've raised some incredibly important points, particularly about the, the long waiting lists for getting the right help. Do you know... Um, 
obviously just recently the NHS has really struggled with COVID. Do you know what kind of effect COVID has had on, on suicide rates? Yeah, well, we've been involved in a number of studies um, looking at the impact of COVID. So, so I'll say a couple of things on that. One is, so uh, led by a colleague in, in uh, Australia, Jane Perkis in Melbourne. So she's brought together about 70 or 80 of us across the world trying to monitor um, the suicide rates since COVID, but comparing it to pre-COVID rates. And so there's a study published, which we published um, a few months ago, which looked at the early impact. So in the early months of COVID up until the end of July of last year, and the data were broadly reassuring, which was that the suicide rates hadn't increased, um, but most of those data were from high-income countries, and they weren't able to do a fine-grained analysis of particular subgroups within the population. And the reason why it's really important when we talk about the subgroups is if you just look at an overall adult level of suicide rates, obviously every one of those deaths is a tragedy, but you, you, you can't really get an understanding of fluctuations within certain groups. They might be completely masked. And the reason we're particularly concerned is because since the start of the pandemic, we've been monitoring what's known as the, uh, the mental health and well-being of the UK population using the UK COVID-19 mental health and well-being study. And we know that we know from, we've, we've done eight waves of data collection since the pandemic started in March 2020, end of March 2020. And we know that certain groups of population, their mental health has been really adversely affected. And those are groups are young people, people from with pre-existing mental health problems, people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, and then some indicators, women, and some indicators, people from uh, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic um, backgrounds and communities. So we know there are groups of people particularly at risk, and that risk, when, when we did the last of the data collection, this is looking at suicidal thoughts, we're tracking suicidal thoughts, as well as symptoms of depression and symptoms of anxiety. And we've, the, the data are clear, the data are clear that there are vulnerable groups out there. So although these early data from our sort of international studies are reassuring about suicide rates, my concern is that as we now recover from the pandemic, hopefully continue to recover from the pandemic, that recovery will be bumpy. And when those social supports and the economic supports, as we know, obviously furlough has been removed, we need to ensure that we are really ensuring that people who need the help get it. And I'm especially concerned about young people. There's no inevitability though, there's no inevitability. We act, continue to act now because I think a lot of those the things like furlough were brilliant, but we've a whole generation of people. We've all gone through this together. And part of the explanation for why we think the suicide rates haven't increased, didn't increase in the early part is because that sense of togetherness, uh, I think, really helped us initially. And we're all in this together. And the idea that and there were these social and national and economic supports put in place. But what's clear from our data and mental health is. We aren't all in this together. We know the deaths were disproportionate in older people. And we know from our data and other data across the globe, that lots of groups of people in particular, I'll highlight here today, young people are vulnerable and we need to do more about that. Yeah, I heard the uh, expression used, we might all be in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat when it comes yeah, to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I was, that quote is from the author, Damien Barr, the Scottish author Damien Barr, um, I think he, he put that tweet out, I think, in April last year, and it went viral. And, and, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad you knew who to attribute it to, because I didn't know. But talking of authors, Rory, you uh, you have a book out at the moment. 
uh, when it's darker. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to write it? Yeah, well, so, so when it's darkest actually covers some of the issues I've just talked Well, actually, all of the issues I've just mentioned are covered in the book. And um, so be, as I said at the outset, 25 years ago, I've been start working in this area for 25 years, and I've always been really passionate about um, understanding suicide and doing the research that we do and hopefully helping some people. Um, but I'm re- I was always so keen that we get the research out into frontline services and also out to people who are directly affected. Those people who struggled themselves, family members who've been bereaved, and people who've attempted suicide. And so, what I tried to do in the book was, um, well, bring to bear really my bring together my personal experiences of my own experience of um, suicide loss, my own experience of mental health problems, and my 25 years of research in the area, together with the stories of many people I've met. I've been really honoured to meet in my journey in suicide research and tell their stories and the stories of people who've been suicidal, the stories of people who've been bereaved. And in that way, hopefully reach out. So the book is written for a lay audience. Um, and uh, and finally, I've been so, so delighted. I was really frightened when it came out, whether how it would be received because I'd given a lot of myself as in the book. It's a really personal book to me, um, but I've been really honored and really humbled by the feedback um, from uh, people who've been directly affected who find the book helpful and um and yeah so it really tries to cover the whole spectrum of in a in an accessible and hopefully compassionate way understanding challenges and myths helping people we often talk in mental health promotion and mental health research about let's ask people should ask for help and you should ask your friends whether they're suicidal so what i try to do is provide tips about those practical things about how you go bro- bro- um, broaching broaching those difficult topics as well as the evidence base for the, the psychological treatments I've talked about, as well as, as a full chapter on this idea of safety planning, as well as in helping understand sort of the real devastation of surviving the aftermath of suicide. And then as well as just, just trying to make people, who've never, if you've never been suicidal or come across somebody suicide, it can be really difficult to understand how somebody could end their life. And what I've tried to do is help people make sense of that. And in so doing, I hope I, hope I provide people with hope but also understanding and, and hopefully challenging some of the myths and misunderstandings. So here's the, the book here now. Well, you can't see it because it's back to front. I think on the camera, on my camera. But uh, so when it's darkest and um, yeah, so no, I've been really, really humbled by um, how it's been received. And, and I've just actually finished recording the audio book, which was an experience in itself. So the audio book comes out, I think, on the 1st of January of this year. Oh, thanks fantastic. for the opportunity to mention the book. <laughs> I'll look forward to listening to it. Thank you so much, Rory. Thank you. Uh, so, Mashika, I want to move on to you, um, if that's okay. So, your, so your research is about uh, borderline personality disorder, um, which is linked to premature mortality. So can you maybe explain a little bit about what BPD is and kind of what we know about the risks that are associated with it? <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, Bryony, for inviting me today and uh, and to MQ for the fellowship and, and the opportunity. Rory, that, that's such a great introduction. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I always learn when I hear you and I, I was making notes as I go and hopefully I can touch on some of the things uh, that you mentioned. Uh, but in specific to BPD, we know borderline personality disorder is characteristic of longstanding persistent difficulties such as intense fear of abandonment 
um, difficulties with self-identity, impulsivity, um, and chronic feelings of emptiness, and also recurrent self-harm and suicidality. There's now very good evidence to show that when BPD is left, BPD symptoms are left unaddressed and untreated, they can have long-term impact on different aspects of functioning. So what we mean by that is uh, it has an impact on employment, you know, exclusion from school, being estranged from family and friends, um, multiple contact with youth justice system, homelessness, and is sadly associated with very high levels of premature mortality. So our own pilot work in Glasgow and that done around the world has shown that many adolescents and young people with complex needs that are characteristic of BPD and at high suicide risk are left underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed and untreated. And as a result of that, you know, there are vulnerable young people within the community that are frequently out of education uh, or training and experience challenges. There, there's, a, there's a repeat pattern of exclusion, uh, which is really sad because it has a huge impact on quality of life. Uh, and it exacerbates inequalities um, for everybody. Yeah, it sounds like uh, sort of early diagnosis is really key. Would you say that um, early intervention is really important for, for, for young people that are struggling with their mental health? Yeah, I, I mean, my most of my research has been uh, in early intervention research. I started off with my clinical training and PhD in Birmingham uh, within early intervention services. So I feel very, very passionately, but I, I, I do think there is now such a large evidence base for early intervention, uh, which is crucial for detection, prevention, treatment of both physical health as well as mental health. So we know there's so much in terms of cardiovascular diseases, cancer prevention. However, within mental health, there is now, you know, over two decades of evidence for good, good clinical research in early intervention and the benefits on prevention and treatment, uh, such as psychosis. Um, we know it can help in reducing symptoms, it can help in improving functioning, reducing risk almost four times and improving quality of life. Even so, there are huge treatment gaps where there are very few who receive evidence-based care and treatment. And this exacerbates inequalities and healthcare systems. Um, I think it's probably because early intervention services have gathered evidence within specialist services. So Rory mentioned earlier on about how we need to start thinking about public health intervention approaches. So I don't think that early intervention is always early. Sometimes it's too late. Um, and I think we need to do more to engage with children and families so there aren't any missed opportunities. We need to engage with infant mental health, with intergenerational, you know, thinking about intergenerational harm and families. So it's not just an age range when we think of early intervention, it has to have a lifespan perspective. And I suppose that ties into what Rory was saying about how 
inequalities um, impact heavily on our mental health. And if we address that early enough, then that might, you know, benefit people and uh, stop them from needing those interventions later on. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Rashika, I know you have shared with us a video about the bridge project which you're leading. For our pilot work, we spoke to 48 young people who were attending different mental health services in Glasgow. These were young people who had problems that had been going on for a long time and whose services were struggling to find solutions for. Despite their high risk and the complex nature of their problems, we found these young people were actually less likely to be assessed or treated for their difficulties and often fell into the gap between child and adult mental health services. One of the young people in our study, James, whose name we have changed for confidentiality, was referred by his psychiatrist after repeated attempts at his life at the age of 25. In our interview with James, when we look back at his early life, he was known as early as age five by an educational psychologist who assessed him for ADHD. He was unfortunately not given any diagnosis or support for this. James was expelled from school at the age of 13 and was in and out of different foster care homes, which he describes as quite traumatic. He was involved in the youth justice system at the age of 15 and unfortunately got involved in some serious violence. James found his mental health got worse in and out of prison services. He was not attending any mental health services until he attempted suicide when he was referred by A&E for a psychiatric service. James had over eight years of persistent mental health difficulties, which were identified as borderline personality disorder. Sadly, there are lots of young people in Glasgow and around the UK that are regularly missed from services and are left untreated. We know that for some, this can increase their risk of unemployment, being on disability benefits, being estranged from families, and sadly, high suicide. The Bridge Study in Glasgow is hoping to identify young people like James in the public much earlier so there aren't missed opportunities. We are not trying to diagnose young people. We just want to learn how we can offer the right help and the right support early on. Sounds like an amazing project that you're working on there, Rashika. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, thank you for sharing that video, Bryony. Um, so Bridge is a clinical trial with young people early in the course of BPD symptoms in Glasgow. And what I mean by early in the course is that 
young people with complex needs who may not meet full threshold to meet a diagnosis, but even sub-threshold symptoms, because now there's very good evidence that you can have long-term poor outcomes, even with sub-threshold. So the point of rarity is, is one uh, threshold symptom on BPD. So we want to engage with young people earlier on. Uh, you were asking earlier, Bryony, whether bridge is an acronym. It, it, it isn't, it's a metaphor for bridging gaps. So for example, identifying vulnerable young people to bridge uh, transitions between children's services and adult services, uh, you know, to bridge gaps within multi-agency working so we can understand the unique context of the young person. Um, young people with early BPD benefit from good clinical care, good relational care and targeted interventions. However, are regularly missed and mislabeled. So the MQ-funded feasibility trial in the, is happening in the general population uh, and would provide initial evidence of the variable needs of young people with complex needs who may be missed from services as they don't fit a model or a diagnosis. Uh, you know, we want to engage with young people, with families, their multi-agency partners within the community. So, we can perhaps tackle not just stigma and discrimination, but also reduce inequalities for, for vulnerable young people and improve outcomes. Oh, it sounds like a fantastic project. And I, I wish you all the best with it. Thank you. Um, so Harry, uh, I wanted to move on to you. Um, we've talked quite a lot about, uh, about the people who, who have been losing their lives and the research that's sort of going on around that, but we haven't really talked much about, I think, the wider impact on friends and family of the people who, um, who are left behind. So could you tell us a little bit about your story? No, certainly. And thank you for having me. It was really uh, inspiring to hear some of those comments. And likewise, I was making notes as, as we go, learn a lot from that passage. Um, but in particular, I I drawn upon the idea of, of being trapped. Um, and it made me think, actually, it made me think about the way in which perhaps I felt trapped uh, in myself. So my father, so I lost my father to suicide at the age of, of 12. Um, and I think he felt trapped. I think there were aspects in his life that he perhaps didn't know how to manage. Uh, I think there are particular levels of stigma in terms of accessing support as a guy in his mid-40s, as a fireman, as an electrician um, in a very small town that made him feel trapped. Um, and for me, as a, as a young boy growing up in Cornwall, one of the furthest uh, you know, remote places you really can, can grow up, I... I kind of had to deal, I guess, I tried my best to deal with the, the ripple effect, um, which Rory mentioned of, of, of those who are left behind, try and solve some of the pain, the unanswered questions, the guilt, I perhaps even as a 12 year old boy, um, that you, you try and make sense of, of your loss. Um, and I think it, for me as a, as, a, as a kid, I never wanted to tell anyone that, that my dad had died. Um, I decided to to hide the fact that he wasn't alive any anymore. Um, for those who didn't know, and I was when I was growing up through through education and trying to go through these milestones in life, still I was determined not to let anybody know that he wasn't here. So, growing up in in St Ives in Cornwall, when I did move away, I would tell a lie that he was alive. I would tell people that he was 
an electrician and he was a fireman and that I would be going home at Christmas to, to be with my mum and my dad. Um, I felt such a such a pain and an association with suicide for me in my hometown and my local community that it was easier for me to put on the facade to people who didn't know just so I could get onto a different conversation. So I would go into, into new conversations, whether that was a new football club, at university, new employer, dating, knowing that the conversation might touch family and friends and that I would have to divert it. So I would go into every conversation in my life, just at the back of my, well, almost at the front of my mind, I would say, knowing that I need to divert it and I'd have plans in place <laughs> to, to get around it. And I'm not sure what caused that. I, I've taken a lot of time over the years to, to think about why it was that I decided to, 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 to behave in that way and I guess bottle up a lot of that I was feeling. I didn't cry for six years and that's not the honest truth. Um, and I think there was a level of stigma that I just couldn't get past. Um, unfortunately, there were, there were um, uh, tabloid media stories as to why my dad decided to, to do what he did um, that created a blame culture. And that, for me, at the age of 12, being named in a lot of these articles and people selling stories as to why, I look back on it now and those articles were things I just could not get away from. Um, but no, it was easier for me to go through life and keep lying. But it meant that I never I never gained connection with anyone because I was too embarrassed to say that I lost someone to suicide. And that put up a barrier for me ever really gaining true friends and true uh, friendships with people because I was always getting to a certain point and then having to, to stop. And what that meant was that I kind of hit the biggest part of my life the biggest thing that uh i you know i choose to value the thing that i want to um want to talk about but couldn't and even within my family and friends I and mean, with my mom and my grandparents we just didn't talk about it and we didn't talk about it for um over a decade um and that was my way of dealing with it that if I was to cry, it would be seen sign of weakness. So I just needed to keep going through the motions in life. I needed to keep ticking things off, getting the job, playing for a certain football team, wearing, looking a particular way. And what I did was that I got to those points in life. Yet when I got to the point that I had a very good job, I got, you know, a first class honours degree and I was looking and acting the way I wanted to, that that was the worst period of my mental health. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that I ever considered suicide was when I had all of those things. Um, and yeah, it was it was something that I didn't ever manage as such, but, but bottled up. But yeah, I know we'll get on to some of the more hopeful points because I like speaking in a hopeful manner as much as I can uh, in a moment. Yeah. It sounds like you had a, a horrific time when you were just 12 and then obviously you had to find your own coping mechanisms after that. Um, what have you really found sort of helped the most since your father passed away? I think it was... Um, an element of surviving for all of that time so I didn't know any other solution and then essentially like reframing how I how I think about what happened how I how I reflect with me in that in that position and there was a huge slice of luck um involved and I can't not deny that there wasn't luck involved and I worry for those who didn't receive this piece of luck that I did and so what I mentioned then that I was at you know in a very a very low place of mental health um, unable to think positively about the future the first time ever that I, I did consider suicide, the only solution I had at that time was to pack up the job that I had and live, move location. because so I didn't know how else to do it. I couldn't tell my mum, I couldn't tell my friends. And I fell upon a job and I was commuting into this new, this new job 
you know, I moved to London. I never wanted to move to London in my life. It was complete opposite to where I wanted to be growing up on the beach. And I was commuting in and I went to the top floor of our new office block. And I was three, three, three weeks into this role and I'd met this new employee once in my life. Um, and I sat there about to start a meeting and I looked out of the, of the window that was in front of me. There's a huge glass panoramic window wrapping the building. And in front of me were people standing on a building not too, not too far from where we were based uh, on the South Bank in London. And I looked out and to the naked eye, I thought these people on the edge of this rooftop were going to jump. It's naturally what you think if on the very top of the building. I didn't have my glasses on, quickly put them on. And I realized that they weren't moving. There was some form of statue, some form of mannequin placed on the roof. So I quickly searched it on my phone, people on ITV Tower Studio London. Because I knew that that was the building. It's not the prettiest building in the world. I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying. But I was exposed to a charity activation. It was a stunt. It was a stunt to raise awareness of male suicide. It was called Project 84. And 84 was reflected of the number of men who die by suicide every single week in the UK in 2018. And it was led by Calm, the campaign against living miserably. And the landing page that I clicked on that day, I was exposed to real life stories, brothers, uh, boyfriends, uh, sons, trying to make sense of their loss. So these mannequins I saw on the roof were real representations of real people who had died by suicide. And up until that point in my life, I had never connected with anything or anyone, any support service that had had some form of connection to me, like people who had the same una similar unanswered questions. And whilst it's everyone's story is different and everyone's pain is different, I felt connection. And just reading it, I can remember feeling the relief. And it's such a difficult thing to explain, but I felt it. And I went back home that day and I was just doing calculations, like 84 men a week just in the UK. Each one of them is more likely to be either a brother, a dad, a son, one of those things you'd hope. And... I was thinking, I'm thinking about the ripple effect and I just questioned why I hid it for so long. And that moment kick-started something for me where I just started connecting again, connecting to people, connecting to support services, um, started to be honest when people would ask me, you know, about my life and my story. And I started to just say it. It took years of, of having, you know, slowly sharing more. But it was the first time that I actually connected with support services. I was open for once in my life to say that, you know, I do find this difficult and I do find the pain difficult, started to speak to my mum again. Um, well, started to speak to my mum about what happened. But more than anything, is I felt connection. And because I was open to receiving it, <laughs> every time I, people would try, it wasn't people in my life didn't try, but I would put such a block up and told people I didn't want to talk about talk to, to anyone about it. But from this moment, I started to realise I wasn't alone in how I was feeling. And what that did was it created like a you know, Constantina effect, I guess, for me, that I slowly, slowly, slowly started to hear more people. I go to talks and hear, you know, people talk, they're like, you know, similar people to Roy, people who are doing amazing research and like, CEOs of charities and celebrities, people that I looked up to in terms of their sporting achievements or how they led a business. But I wanted to hear their stories. And then it slowly over time, I felt more empowered to tell more people. And it, yeah, it created um you know, I, you know, I'll speak around this subject and um, it's still not easy. I still make sure I plan something, you know, more relaxing and uh, after every talk. But um, it was a strange moment where everything just turned on its head to go from your biggest thing you wanted to hide to the thing that you want to talk about because you know the benefit of talking. You know the benefit of asking people how they are. And for once in my life, I think at that moment in time, I was exposed to a charity that could help and was exposed to sports services but I also fell upon a group of people who cared, people who wanted to be there for me because they'd seen how it impacted me. 
And those people became colleagues, but they also became, you know, very, very close friends almost overnight because I shared an experience with them. And they, they, they acted in a way that I knew that if I ever struggled, I could go to them. And I did. I cried to them often more than I had done my whole life up to that point. Um, so it's about connection, connection to all of those things. I think it's wonderful that you're you're putting, you know, all of your your experiences to such good use now. Because not only are you an ambassador for for MQ and for Calm, but I understand you're now a mental health first aider as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm an I'm an instructor, so I teach people to be mental health first aiders. But yeah, I'm a mental health first aider, I guess, as well. But um, no, for me, I you know I was at that business that I fell upon at that point. I worked there for four years. I really really enjoyed my time and they helped me so much so it was very difficult to leave but I you know now I do a lot of speaking around this uh, help organizations charities uh, and also do my own, my own training as well um, and for me um, I think my my four-year journey especially kind of told me that I needed to, to make as much change as I could possible <laughs> so people didn't feel the same as me but also people knew that there was support available and they didn't feel, feel alone um, I know we're running out of time, really, but the, on the instructor training in particular, I found it as a way to, to give back, a way that people can then start to approach people with conversations. And mental health first aid is not going to change, solve the whole world's mental health um, problems, but it will play its part. And I think about marginal gains in organisations and charities in particular, uh, societal groups, having more people that are trained to be able to spot the signs of mental ill health and to have conversations and actually to talk about suicide and say the word suicide is something that this course does deliver. Um, so it can play its part. Um, and for me, I've seen such a, uh, it's been so empowering to see how people change on these courses. But they say, okay, it's actually good practice to say that, you know, if, pe if people are showing the signs, you know, suicidal ideation, and they might mention something just seems out of character, then approaching about this is a good thing. Um, talking about suicide, uh, of, up being upfront about that, acting upon your gut feeling. You know, if everyone could do this and everyone could act upon they, these red flags that they see, you know, I think, you know, that helps people to get the right level of support or at least signposted. So, so yeah, you know, I, I do that and I, you know, really, really enjoy it and love to see people's kind of transition that they go through. But like I said, it's one part of a much bigger picture. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us, Harry. First thing, Harry, I mean, such an I mean, incredibly brave and courageous thing you've done. And the number of people you're helping is, is just remarkable because I think just unleashing or whatever that, or Tom and Gerald, the, the shame that you felt and then how you managed to get through that. Um, it's just amazing. So incredible, incredible work. And um, but I think it also highlights, the start of the story is highlights how um, public engagement campaigns are so important. And you've just mean that, obviously the CAM campaign, if you're, if, if, that, if, if that only, if you're the only person that that affected, that's enough. But you won't have been because obviously I got huge coverage. So really, really important. And like events like this are so, so helpful. So thank you so much. So we do have about 10 minutes left. So we've got some time for some questions from the audience. So um, Rory and Rashika, this might be a question for the two of you. So Robert has asked, what proportion of people who take their lives do actually have a severe mental illness? Do we have those kinds of statistics? It's difficult to answer that question specifically well, um, because there's different ways in which can, severe mental illness can be defined. Because um, if you look at, if, if you define severe mental illness beyond sort of clinical diagnosis per se and say, well, actually, if somebody has a mental illness that led to their 
say they're suicide, contribute to suicide. Well, to my mind, that's severe because the outcome, the impact is devastating. So I think some, some statistics, I think um, Brian, he had the 20% statistic at the, at the start. There's some variability across different mental health conditions. Of course, some range from 2 or 3% across a lifetime through to about 20%. And um, so I don't, but I think there's still, there's a huge number of caveats around those estimates um, would be what I would say. Uh, so I've got another question here from Nick, who says, uh, do you think that things like suicide have extra layers in terms of stigma? And what role do you think that schools should have in taking more philosophical approaches to life and uh, talking about suicide in order to educate? Do you think that schools have a role in uh protecting people? Yeah, I'm happy to say a couple of lines. Um, I think for me, school was somewhere, again, you know, many years ago, but I, a teacher never approached me at that point. And that's not out of blame. I'm sure they were keeping a watchful eye on me, that I was keeping on track and playing my sports and doing okay. But no one, no one approached me. And I don't think that was out of a, a bad heart. I think it was about how. And I think, so I think, you know, having increased education for teachers is, is a must, but also I think softer skills in terms of how we can, within pupil environments, create an environment of empathy or kindness about actually the boundaries between banter <laughs> when it becomes bullying, all these things that can happen. Um, and I think also obviously with a lot of people within in a sporting environments as well, starts within school is about how can you change that? How can you change the environment within kids will go into their particular uh, outlets outside of, of, of the schooling system with a completely different attitude. And that actually, if you spot something, actually, this is how you might want to approach it. This is what you might, you might say. And I think these kind of soft skills, both for the pupils and then also you know, awareness raising for teachers is, is a must, um, because I think it would have been different for me if I was able to, to lean upon the support of teachers for sure. Um, you know, school was a safe haven when at the day after, well, on the day, actually, in fact, when, when my, my dad did die by suicide, I said to my mum, I wanted to go to school. She didn't let me on the day, um, perhaps rightly so. But on the next morning, I did go to school. So less than you know, 24 hours after finding out I was in school. Um, and for me, it was a release. So I think sometimes when you schooling is a safe place, if we can, it has some amazing opportunity. Um, for me, it was a, almost like a, a way of... Um, blocking it out versus being supported, if that makes sense. Mm. It could have been different. I want to join Rory. Harry, I've, I've been learning so much hearing from you, and I know the panellists, uh, the, the attendees are as well, just by looking at the comments, uh, your story is moving, and what you're just saying in terms of how schools can be a safe haven, we talked to young people in our advisory group, and they said exactly that, that our partnership with schools, with teachers, is going to be crucial in in engaging uh, a community-based framework. Uh, you know, we can't just rely on special services. They're there, of course, but how do we communicate? And you said it beautifully about how do we support teachers in supporting others? And that's a really nice framework as well. Um, so I've got another question here, which is from Jana, um, which might not be a question we can answer today, but if we can't, then perhaps we can do a, a follow up. Um, and her question is, what is the latest research about the effects of addiction on mental health and specifically on suicides? 
Um, Rashika, have you found that, um, is there a higher risk of addiction or things like that when it comes to people with borderline personality disorder? Well, addiction increases uh, risk all across mental health, uh, but we know there's a lot of comorbidity within BPD uh, and, and it increases risk of suicide, but suicide completions as well. So it's definitely an area we need more research in terms of refining our understanding of addictions within the different comorbidities, uh, rather than just looking at it from, I think very often I find with a lot of things, we tend to isolate them. Mm-hmm. and not treat them holistically. Uh, and we have to understand how it impacts uh, the unique person you know, in front of you, rather than, of course, there's evidence-based practice, but it's about understanding the individual story and then implementing uh, the appropriate interventions. Brian, can I just ask, I just see there's a, well, there's a comment or question on the chat here about um, this, that's highlighting the point that most people who die by suicide are not in contact type of clinical services so just be clear what i said so i didn't say i didn't say anything that didn't so because that the so when you we know that in the uk that less than 30 percent of people about 27 or 28 percent of people who died by suicide have been in contact with clinical services in the 12 months before they die that's where that 70 percent statistic comes from um no but when you do psychological autopsies the percentage of people who are either on medication or for um, depression, so for example, or anxiety, which are, depends again, comes back to this issue about serious mental illness, then obviously that's where you're getting these rates. When we look at the relationship between mental illness or mental health problems and suicide, that's some studies reported as as high as 90% of people, um, but I don't think it's quite as high as that, but it's still, there's certainly without question a strong relationship. But the key question then for me, come back to that, um, I think Francesco's point is, where we need the, to me, the question is why is it that the majority of people who die by suicide are not in contact with clinical services? Is it because the services aren't tailored to their needs, they're not accessible, or the individual doesn't feel that either that support's out there, know about that support, or think it'll help them? That actually leads me on to, um, to another question, again from Jana, who says, uh, how do we get young men or older men to open up about their struggles um, in the first place? And perhaps if there are a lot of men who are struggling with their mental health, who aren't reaching out to those clinical services, how can we encourage them to reach out for help? I think it's tough, but I think there are definitely ways. Um, And I think for me, what I've seen a lot of power in is when we can change the narrative in environments where men are often based. So within particular groups, how can we, yes, I'm going to take sport as an example again. I don't want to lean on sport, but it is, you know, like in footballing cultures and rugby cultures, how can we change what would normally happen in those environments? Like I said, I would go to, to, a, to a football game every Saturday. I would play, I would watch, I would talk about it, but not ever once did I have an opportunity to talk about my, how I felt in those environments. Like, I, it was the only consistent thing I ever had, but it would, had a huge opportunity when I was younger. I think, you know, bringing people together around things they're already passionate about and then bringing in conversation about mental health is really good practice. So again, people who people who are trained, bringing in experts to talk, bringing in researchers to share their experience, just small little light bulb moments, little nuggets that can then open up a conversation. It's not about training absolutely everyone. It's not about educating everyone. It's about having people who can spot the signs in those environments because that's where we can see the changes in people. 
and obviously like we said you know people will show often that they are not in the best mental health place on the lead up to to suicide but how actually how can we give people the best chance to spot those symptoms and have the right conversations in those environments and for me when it comes to guys especially it's about having people it's having role models who can stand up and say you know i've spotted this is everything okay and if you don't want to speak now i'm here for you to speak whenever you want here's my number happy to do x y and z and you know it's going to be hard to break down the barriers but if we have people who can spot that within places where men are often based for me is a huge part of it of course it's not the only role but it's a really important one this is an absolutely fascinating topic and i would love to carry on talking to all of you uh, all evening but unfortunately we have now run out of time i'm afraid so i do want to say a huge thank you to the three of you for joining us uh, this evening and for giving up your time. Um, so for the people watching, if you or if someone you love is struggling with their mental health, or if you just really feel like you just need to talk to someone, then there are some fantastic organisations out there that you can reach out to. So Harry has already mentioned CALM, the Campaign Against Living Miserably. They offer support to anyone who needs it, and you can call them on 0800 58 58 58. Or you can also find them online as well. Their web address is just thecalmzone.net. Um, for young people, The Mix is a great charity. They offer support to anyone under the age of 25. And again, you can phone them on 0808 808 4994, or you can find them just at themix.org.uk. And of course, if you are having suicidal thoughts, then please do call the Samaritans. They are available every hour of every day and you can call them at any time on 116123. As Rory's book tells us, when it's darkest, we should look for the light. And I hope that today, some of the research that we have talked about has given, uh, given you some hope. If any of our people in the audience watching today wanted to find any of you and hear any more, where can they find you? Rashika, uh, can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm, I'm not quite as, as uh, active. I'm still learning. But yes, mm -hmm. I'm on at Gajwani uh, Ruchika. Uh, I'm also on ruchika.gajwani at glasgow.ac.uk. Lovely. Thank you. And Rory, where can people find you? Um, uh, on Twitter at at Suicide Research uh, or as, at the university website or our website, which is suicideresearch.info. Lovely. And Harry, where can people follow you? I mean, I mean, having a Cornish name like Corin is very rare, so I'm quite easy to find. Um, for now, just at um, harry.corin on Instagram, and it's harrycorin29 on Twitter, and then on LinkedIn as well, fairly active as well, depending on what background you come from. So, yeah. Me. Wonderful. Well, thank you once again to all of our fantastic panellists. Uh, and thank you to everyone who joined us this evening as well and watched this. Uh, and I hope that everybody has a fantastic evening. Thank you and goodbye. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organisation that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.